Book One, Chapter Five of *The Branding Iron* by Catherine Newland Burt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Book One, Chapter Five. Pierre becomes alarmed about his property. The next time Hollowell came, he brought the books, and finding Pierre at home, he sat with his host after supper and talked men's talk of the country, of game, of ranching, a little gossip, stories of travel, humorous experiences, and Joan sat in her place, the books in her lap, looking and listening. John Carver had used a phrase, "'When you see her eyes looking and looking at another man,' and this phrase had stuck in Pierre's sensitive and jealous memory. What Joan felt for Hollowell was a sort of ignorant and respectful tenderness, the excitement of an intelligent child first moved to a knowledge of its own intelligence, the gratitude of savage loneliness toward the beautiful feat of exploration. A consciousness of her clean mind, a consciousness of her young, untamed spirit, had come slowly to life in her since her talk with Hollowell. Joan was peculiarly a woman that is, the passive and receptive being. Pierre had laid his hand on her heart, and she had followed him. Now this young parson had put a curious finger on her brain. It followed him. Her husband saw the admiration, the gratitude, the tender excitement in her frank eyes, and the poison seed sown by John Carver's hand shot out roots and tiny deadly branches. But Joan and Hollowell were unaware. Pierre smoked rapidly, rolling cigarette after cigarette. He listened with a courteous air. He told stories in his soft, slow voice. Once he went out to bring in a fresh log, and coming back on noiseless feet, saw Joan and her instructor bent over one of the books, and Joan's face was almost that of a stranger, so eager, so flushed, with sparkles in the usually still gray eyes. It was not till a week or two after this second visit from the clergyman that Pierre's smoldering jealousy broke into flame. After clearing away the supper things with an absent air of eager expectation, Joan would dry her hands on her apron, and, taking down one of her books from their place in a shelf corner, she would draw her chair close to the lamp and begin to read, forgetful of Pierre. These had been the happiest hours for him. He would tell Joan about his day's work, about his plans, about his past life. Wonderful it was to him, after his loneliness, that she should be sitting there drinking in every word and loving him with her dumb, wild eyes. Now there was no talk and no listening. Joan's absorbed face was turned from him and bent over her book. Her lips moved. She would stop and stare before her. After a long while, he would get up and go to bed, but she would stay with her books till a restless movement from him would make her aware of the lamplight shining wakefulness upon him through the chinks in the partition wall. Then she would get up reluctantly, sighing, and come to bed. For ten evenings this went on, Pierre's heart slowly heating itself, until all at once the flame leaped. 
Joan had untied her apron and reached up for her book. Pierre had been waiting, hoping that of her free will she might prefer his company to the parson fellers, for in his ignorance those books were jealously personified, but without a glance in his direction she had turned as usual to the shelf. "'You going to read?' Pierre asked hoarsely. It was a painful effort to speak. She turned with a childish look of astonishment. "'Yes, Pierre.' He stood up with one of his lithe, swift movements, all in one rippling piece. "'By God, you're not, though,' said he, strode over to her, snatched the volume from her, threw it back into its place, and pointed her to her chair. "'You set down and give heed to me for a change, Joan Carver,' he said, his smoke-colored eyes smoldering. "'I didn't fetch you up here to read Parsons' books and waste oil. I fetched you up here to—' He stopped, choked with a sudden enormous hurt tenderness, and sat down and fell to smoking and staring, hot-eyed into the fire and Joan sat silent in her place, puzzled, wistful, wounded, her idle hands folded, looking at him for a while, then absently before her, and he knew that her mind was busy again with the preacher-feller's books. If he had known better how to explain his heart, if she had known how to show him the impersonal eagerness of her awakening mind, but, savage and silent, they sat there, loving each other, hurt, but locked each into his own impenetrable life. After that, Joan changed the hours of her study and neglected housework and sagebrush grubbing, but, nonetheless, were Pierre's evenings spoiled. Perfection of intercourse is the most perishable of all life's commodities. Now, when he talked, he could not escape the consciousness of having constrained his audience. She could not escape her knowledge of his jealousy, the remembrance of his mysterious outbreak, the irrepressible tug of the story she was reading. So it went on till snow came, and they were shut in, man and wife, with only each other to watch, a tremendous test of good fellowship. This searching intimacy came at a bad time, just after Hollowell's third visit, when he had brought a fresh supply of books. "'There's poetry this time,' he said. "'Get Pierre to read it aloud to you.' The suggestion was met by a rude laugh from Pierre. "'I wouldn't be wasting my time,' he jeered. It was the first rift in his courtesy. Hollowell looked up in sharp surprise. He saw a flash of the truth, a little wriggle of the green serpent in Pierre's eyes before they fell. He flushed and glanced at Joan. She stood by the table in the circle of lamplight, looking over the new books, but in her eagerness there was less simplicity. She wore an almost timorous air, accepted his remarks in silence, shot doubtful looks at Pierre before she answered questions was an entirely different Joan. Now Hollowell was angry, and he stiffened toward his host and hostess, dropped all his talk about the books, and smoke haughtily. 
He was young and oversensitive, no more master of himself in this instance than Pierre and Joan. But before he left after supper, refusing a bed, though Pierre conquered his dislike sufficiently to urge it, Hollowell had a moment with Joan. It was very touching. He would tell about it afterwards, but for a long time he could not bear to remember it. She tried to return his books, coming with her arms full of them and lifting up eyes that were almost tragic with renunciation. "'I can't be taking the time to read them, Mr. Hollowell,' she said, that extraordinary, over-expressive voice of hers running an octave of regret. "'In some way Pierre don't like that I should spend my evenings on them. Seems like he thinks I was setting myself up to be knowing more than him.' She laughed ruefully. "'Me, knowing more'n Pierre. It's laughable. But anyways, I don't want him to be thinking that. So take the books, please. I like them,' she paused. "'I love them,' she said hungrily, and, blinking, thrust them into his hands. He put them down on the table. "'You're wrong, Joan,' he said quickly. "'You mustn't give in to such a foolish idea.' You have rights of your own, a life of your own. Pierre mustn't stand in the way of your learning. You mustn't let him. I'll speak to him. Oh, no! Some intuition warned her of the danger in his doing this. Well, then keep your books and talk to Pierre about them. Try to persuade him to read aloud to you. I shan't be back now till spring but I want you to read this winter. Read all the stuff that's there. Come, Joan, to please me. And he smiled coaxingly. I ain't afeard of Pierre, said Joan slowly. Her pride was stung by the suggestion. I'll keep the books, she sighed. Goodbye. When I see you in the spring, I'll be a right learned schoolmarm. She held out her hand, and he took and held it, pressing it in his own. He felt troubled about her, unwilling to leave her in the snow-bound wilderness with that young savage of the smoldering eyes. "'Good-bye,' said Pierre behind him. His soft voice had a click. Hollowell turned to him. "'Good-bye, Landis. I shan't see either of you till the spring.' I wish you a good winter, and I hope—' He broke off and held out his hand. "'Well,' said he, "'you're pretty far out of everyone's way here. Be good to each other.' "'Damn your interference,' said Pierre's eyes, but he took the hand and even escorted Hollowell to his horse. Snow came early and deep that winter. It fell for long gray days and nights, and then it came in hurricanes of drift, wrapping the cabin in swirling white till only one window peered out and one gabled corner crocked itself above the crust. Pierre had cut and stacked his winter wood. He had sent his cows to a richer man's ranch for winter feeding. There was very little for him to do. After he had brought in two buckets of water from the well, and had cut, for the day's consumption, 
a piece of meat from his elk hanging outside against the wall, he had only to sit and smoke, to read old magazines and papers, and to watch Joan. Then the poisonous roots of his jealousy struck deep. Always his brain, unaccustomed to physical idleness, was at work, falsely interpreting her wistful silence. She was thinking of the parson, hungry to read his books, longing for the open season and his coming again to the ranch. In December a man came in on snowshoes bringing the mail. One letter for Pierre, a communication which brought heat to his face. The forest service threatened him with a loss of land. It pointed to some flaw in his title. Part of his property, the most valuable part, had not yet been surveyed. Pierre looked up with set jaws, every fighting instinct sharpened to hold what was his own. "'I have put in two years' hard work on them acres,' he told his visitor, "'and I'm not planning to give them over to the first fool favored by the service. My title is as clean as my hand.' It'll take more'n thievery and more'n spite to take it away from me. You better go to Robinson, advised the bearer of the letter. Can't get after them fellers too soon. It's a country where you can easy come by what you want, but where it ain't so easy to hold on to it. If it ain't your land, it's your hosses. If it ain't your hosses, it's your wife. He looked at Joan and laughed. Pierre went white and dumb. The chance shot had inflamed his wound. He strapped on his snowshoes and bade a grim good-bye to Joan, after the man had left. "'Don't you be wasting oil while I'm away,' he told her sharply, standing in the doorway, his head level with the steep wall of snow behind him, and he gave her a threatening look so that the tenderness in her heart was frozen." After he had gone, "'Pierre, say a real good-bye, say good-bye,' she whispered. Her face cramped and tears came. She heard his steps lightly crunching across the hard, bright surface of the snow. They entered into the terrible frozen silence. Then she turned from the door, dried her eyes with her sleeve like a little village girl, and ran across the room to a certain shelf. Pierre would be gone a week. She would not waste oil, but she would read. It was with the appetite of a starved creature that she fell upon her books. End of Book One, Chapter Five Recording by Roger Moline